Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Welcome to another episode and a new year of the Living Church Podcast. I'm Amber Noel, your host. Happy New Year, happy belated Feast of the Epiphany, and we are so glad you've joined us today. Another high and holy day coming up soon is February 7th, Super Bowl Sunday. My tongue is in my cheek so hard it hurts right now. I grew up surrounded by football fans, especially, let it be known, those who like rooting for the underdog, no Cowboys fans in the Noel household. But I've never been a fan of football, though I did my best as a little girl, I promise, to learn the game, and then later as an adult, to spend time with the men in my family, but it just never stuck. So I am one of those people with a far more critical eye toward football than a loving eye. So the title for today's podcast, Is Football a Sin? That was, that was me. It was all me. I figured football is filled with the controversies of money, race, power, violence, idolatry. Surely American football is irredeemable. Alas, not everyone agrees with me. Notably, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, the most Reverend Michael Curry, and the theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas do not agree with me. Their love for the game is formidable, but they are also not without their critiques and their exhortations for us as possible fans. And today we have the honor and frankly the sheer pleasure of hearing presiding Bishop Curry and Dr. Hauerwas riff on the joys, virtues, and ethical challenges of American football. With a few anecdotes thrown in, and some of them coming from Dr. Hauerwas are slightly colorful. And as a bonus, the conversation is moderated by Dr. Elizabeth Rain Kincaid, Assistant Professor of Ethics and Moral Theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary, a raging Texan, and a fellow football fan. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. We have a feeling that you will. And a special thanks to the Office of the Presiding Bishop for making this episode possible. 
All right. Well, welcome Bishop Curry and Dr. Hauerwas to our um, The Living Church podcast. We are so grateful and appreciative for you all and that you all have taken the time to talk with us about um, an issue that is near and dear to the hearts of, of many Americans and including Dallas Cowboy fans like myself and look forward to hearing it, your thoughts and reflections. So let me, let's just get us started with a question I know would be on all our listeners' minds. Do either of you have a football team that you cheer for, whether, you know, with the support of your conscience or against your conscience? Which one of us do you want to answer? Either one. (laughs) (laughs) Professor, I'll defer to you. (laughs) I'm a Cowboy fan. Oh, God bless you. Dandy Don Meredith. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Mount Pleasant, Texas. And uh, I grew up um, with uh, football determining life. Football could even sometimes trump Southern Baptist life. <laughs> that would be a big, that would be a big, um, I always, uh, there's a scene in the last picture show uh, that uh, the young man after he, he's, he's very small, but he's playing left tackle for Midland. And after the game, which they've lost, he and his girlfriend go out and parked by a tank, and he, she immediately takes off her sweater. They've done this many times, and you see his hand drop, and she said, what in the hell are you doing? He said, well, it's my birthday. I thought we might do something special. She says, I'll be damned we will. She says, you only play in the line. You don't even play in the backfield. <laughs> that, that was a nice indication of status and how it was determined in Texas. If you played in the line, you ha- you making outrights were much smaller. <laughs> After, <yes>. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right, but Bishop Curry, and how about you? What, what where were you know your your formation? Well, my story is much tamer. It's much tamer. It's it's. Well, see, I grew up in, and my dad was a priest and had a church in Buffalo, even though my grandma was from here, from North Carolina. Um, and so I grew up in Buffalo, and I'm a lifelong Buffalo Bills fan, uh, even back in the days when they were the old AFL um, and weren't quite considered NFL caliber. And then finally, they merged the two leagues. And I remember when Joe Willie Namath and the New York Jets, I remember when the AFL won a Super Bowl. I mean, that that was like, we finally made it. We're finally respectable. Now, being a lifelong Buffalo Bills fan, um, as I tell my friends um, in Christ who are Patriots fans, uh, which is a team that I have no love for, but in Christ, there is no East nor West. Um, and uh, but I told them when they were when they've been heartbroken um, when they've lost, uh, which we hope will be more frequently than it is normally. And this season seems to be the year. Uh, but I tell them I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, which means I'm uh, uh, an official NFL grief counselor, well acquainted with grief, and I can help them through all the stages until they finally accept their station in life, whatever it happens to be. And uh, so as you can, well, you can't see on the podcast, but I got a Buffalo Bills helmet behind me. Uh, when I was on CNN not long ago, Wolf Blitzer said, is that a Buffalo Bills helmet behind you? I said, this was off camera. I said, yeah. He said, I'm from Buffalo. I said, are you? He said, you better believe I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. 
win, lose, or draw, sometimes more lose than win. Um, but I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, which means I'm a man of faith. <laughs> I, I have to put up with Jerry Jones. You had to put up with um, OJ. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, we don't mention him very often anymore. But yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Well, from, I mean, from y'all stories and growing up in Texas, I very much understand uh, Stanley's point of view on this, but football is something that resonates deep with most Americans. We call it the American game. And it's not something that people around the world play in the same way. And it's not something that people have the same devotion to. It's not, you know, it's not the beautiful game like soccer. So what does it mean for us as American Christians that football is our game? How does that affect our witness to the world? How does this affect maybe our formation? Um, mm. I'd just love to hear y'all's thoughts on what it means for us that football is so deep-rooted in, in so many of our hearts. I, I started last time, Bishop. It's your turn. Is it, is it my turn this time? Okay, doctor. Well, you know, I mean, I, I guess on one level, it's like anything else. Um, you know, I mean, football's a game. Um, now, there are questions about is it played as safely as it can be played? Um, and there, over the years, there have been rule changes that have made it safer. Um, there's technology that's, that's made it safer in terms of padding, in terms of helmeting and all that kind of stuff. And, and the rules really do affect what's safe. There, um, um, there really are enough rule, number of rules that have come just in the last 10 years um, and to do everything possible to make it safe so that it is humane. Um, I think there's some built-in justices and injustices, um, some of which are being addressed and some are not. You know, uh, Colin Kaepernick um, taking a knee some years ago and the way he was treated by the NFL was unconscionable. Um, and, and we all know full well, he's been blackballed from football. Now, nobody's saying that, and it, but we know full well, he can't get a job. Um, and he's probably aging out by now, I suspect. Um, but that, that's real. Um, and, and then there are the question of inequities in the whole system that, that I think are some of which are being addressed. I think some of the leadership of the NFL is trying to address them. Um, questions about college ball. Um, and the status of college ball and how much economically um, football and other athletics take up an academic institution. I can say that because I'm not in an academic institution, but there's some real questions about um, justice and equity that are issues. All of that said, that doesn't mean that the game is intrinsically bad. Um, I, am, I love football, but it's kind of like America. I love America, but I love it so much that I won't let, let it stay the way it is. I want it to be better than it is. And I believe in reforming it. Same thing is true about football, baseball, basketball, soccer, um, you, you name it. I uh, think that football is not America's game. Mm -hmm. Baseball is America's game. And I yeah. like baseball being America's game because it's so slow. And, um, and America's reputation for speed needs to take into account the slowness of baseball and the art form of baseball. But football, I grew up with in a way that you can't help but follow it. And it's such, um, I have a 
friend from England, one of my colleagues in the English department, I once asked him if he watched football. And he says, oh, you mean that game y'all play with armor? (laughs) 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 And uh, you do do wonder about the armor and what it entails. But it's such a communal game. I mean, it requires cooperation between 11 people who Mm. otherwise wouldn't be cooperating at all. (laughs) Mm. Uh, and yes. <laughs> I think that that is a, um, a very good exemplification of what America needs, namely how to figure out to get people that weigh 350 pounds to cooperate with one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> And, I, and there, there, I guess there's two, two a point each of y'all raised I'd like to go back to in a little bit more de- more depth. And um, for you, Bishop Curry, I'd love to hear you talk. I mean, you brought up Colin Kaepernick, and that's obviously been on my mind, too, thinking about doing this podcast. But And, and we've seen this in the NBA, too, the um, sort of potential for athletes to really be exemplars uh, or, or, or to raise public consciousness around awareness of injustice. I think that Pope Francis just actually met with some NBA players um, and kind of thanked them for some of their work. Um, So do you see more room in football with the stage it has for, for for, I guess the players. And like you said, the league in a certain sense was what caused the problems with uh, Kaepernick with the way he he was treated in the league. Um, I mean, do you think that there's more potential there for this type of, consciousness, mm-hmm. national consciousness awareness around issues of injustice and particularly racial injustice. Sure, they've got the stage. Anybody who's got stage has a moral responsibility, not only to perform well on the stage, um, but to leverage their influence for the social good. Th- that is just an obligate, whether you like it or not, it comes with the territory. And so that's true of football, that's true of actors, that's true of the film actors, Broadway. I mean, anybody who has a stage has a moral obligation to do what they can to use it for social good in ways that help um, help people, um, ways that are positive. You know, I mean, the truth of the matter is Jackie Robinson had as much to do um, with the desegregation of America as Brown versus Board of Education. The integration, Truman and integrating the military as a result of hearing some of injustices, um, desegregating the military um, had as much to do as Brown versus Board of Education or as, uh, as the civil rights. In other words, it's all interrelated. Um, the military, our sports figures, they have the stage and they can use leverage their influence um, for the good. Um, and, and that's always, and it's true of football and it's been true of basketball. It's been true. I mean, notice how the sports have, have uh, people have actually leveraged in the last, just in the last year after the, um, um, you know, after, after the shootings and the um, violence, they've leveraged it. Well, that, that, that social good comes with the territory. Um, sports is not neutral. It can't be because none of us are. Um, we're all players. Um, I am, you are, we all are. Uh, we are moral agents and therefore we have a responsibility. And, and so, yeah, I think football can actually, and has made a constructive difference. Now there are issues that need to be addressed 
and no question about that. But it has made a positive difference um, and can uh, do so even more. I mean, I think about the, uh, uh, well, it wasn't the football stadium. It was the, uh, in LA, um, the Staples Arena, where they opened it up um, for voting registration mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. Well, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff can be done. So the answer is yes, it can make a positive difference. We are not victims of fate unless we make a decision to do nothing. Mm. Mm. Thank I, you. I think and- my, my worry is that there is an illusion that if you're pretty good as a football player, you can get in the NFL. Mm. And that, of course, only very few play in the NFL that play football. That's okay once that illusion is exploded because one of the things that football does is it teaches discipline. And to have your life disciplined is one of the ways that you can uh, confront the prejudice that is so prevalent in the fact that we see why more African-Americans are always on teams Mm. because they didn't have that much alternatives. And that is not a bad thing if, as a matter of fact, they learn through playing football ways of being part of a future that is not determined by prejudice. we'd love if you'd consider sponsoring the Living Church Podcast. You can choose a sponsorship level anywhere from 99 cents to $9.99 a month. If you enjoy what we do, if you find it edifying and entertaining, click the link to sponsor in the podcast description or in the show notes. It's a small gift, but for a nonprofit like us, it can go a long way. Thanks for considering. This podcast is sponsored in part by the Episcopal Church. Our church, through prayer, action, and gifts, through the Bless Annual Appeal, makes a difference in the lives of others because of the many faithful like you. You can learn more about the work of the church online at iam.ec forward slash bless or text bless you to 251555. Messaging and data rates apply. Thank you for helping us to share the good news and to walk the way of love together. Stanley, I'd like to go, I mean, you, you've been kind of touching in various ways on this idea of football as formation and virtue. And this is one of the things I always appreciate about your work is I think you do a really helpful job illuminating how different aspects of life can teach us about being formed in virtue. I know you've done great work on being a Texan, even forming people in virtue. So what would you say for those of us who aren't playing football, haven't played football, whose football days are behind us? What are the ways that we can be, that, that football and even being a football fan might contribute to formation and virtue? Is it, like you said, looking at the team and this idea of people having disparate roles but still coming together for a common good? I think you don't want to underestimate the importance of the skills you need to learn to be a good fan because when you see the left tackle pull, 
you understand that a play is going to occur uh, around end that um, you therefore are able to appreciate the kind of formations necessary to have a good football play. Now, I mean, so being a fan can involve the kind of training that uh, comes from being able to see why I need to do this because it is the way I serve my neighbor. So we've, you know, you've raised a lot of examples about how football can contribute to our formation, can contribute to the good, can promote justice. And I, and I want to raise with you all this fact that it is a liturgy that we participate in. All of the aspects of, of being a football fan, there's a liturgical element. We all know when to stand. We all know when to cheer. What are the dangers that as Christians we should be aware of or thinking about as we participate in these alternative liturgies? Are there things we need to watch out for in ourselves? I'll go very quickly, Bishop Curry. I think nationalism rides on the back of a good deal of football loyalty. I stand when the flag is unfurled and they sing the national anthem. I don't sing. I think the identification of a sport with uh, nationalistic identification fails to uh, see in what way a sport needs to attract people who are not part of your nation. Mm. Yeah, I, I would follow up, follow that train of thought um, in terms of the dangers of mob mentality and um, subservience to that. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, there's a, there's, there's nothing wrong with fan loyalty and all that kind of stuff and rooting for your team and all that kind of stuff. But, but this happens not just in foot, American football, but if you watch soccer. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it's, this gets dangerous. Um, and, and that easy, I mean, this is like Reinhold Niebuhr at large, moral man in an immoral society. You get in that mob. I mean, it's a parable of, of mob, of, of getting in a mob. That, that's just, it's, it's part of, I don't know why we're like that, but it, it, it's a reality that's a part of sports. Football can bring that, that out. Um, you get enough beer in folk. Like I had a parishioner when I was a parish priest, you say, you get enough ignorant oil in folk, and you get a lot of ignorance. Um, and, and he was right about that. You get folk sauced up. And when I was in Buffalo, people used whiskey because uh, they didn't have the warmers back in those days. They figured a little whiskey would warm you up on the inside. Um, you get folk doing enough drinking and enough carrying on, and you got you got some, you can have potential issues. But even beyond that, there, we've, we've seen many riots in cities that were celebrations for the team that won. Um, and like I said, football around the world, it gets, so that's a real danger because there are heightened emotions, affections, um, and weird loyalties that can get subsumed in some ugly stuff. Um, I think um, one of the aspects of fan loyalty is how it suggests the profound loneliness that captures people's lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, ask yourself, 
Yeah. Why would you put on a pig nose to, to um, follow the uh, Washington football team and take off your shirt and so on? Um, and and it's, you're identifying with a group of people that are, have seats around you who are dressed the same. What, what prompts people for that? Well, it's a way to overcome loneliness for three hours and uh, to be part of a group. And I take that as partly a judgment against the church. We don't provide a sense of being part of a people. That means I can call into question false communities that are there because people have not found a way to be in life to share goods. Yeah. How can we do that better as Episcopalians? I mean, we're all Episcopalians on this call, and I assume our listeners are either probably Episcopalians or in one of the continuing Anglican churches. Um, What are some strengths that our tradition might offer to address this need. I mean, in a certain way, we're a very, at least again, Episcopalians, a very American church. But what are things that we could be offering, um, or, or you know, people in a parish thinking about, have it, looking at these, uh, not problems with perhaps football intrinsically, but what unhealthy fandom can point us towards in our culture? What could we offer in the church? The Book of Common Prayer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's something that can actually, that can unite us and create a community around an even more important identity. It gives you a language that you can't find anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it is common prayer to gather community around common prayer, shared prayer, which is also sharing of life, of Mm -hmm. lives. Of, of living together, so to speak. I mean, not quite literally, but living together. I mean, because when it goes deeper, that, that prayer book, I, I've never preached this sermon, but I, someday I'll preach it. Um, the title was Don't Cook the Recipe Book. Um, the, the prayer book's a wonderful recipe book. And that if you go deep within it, it's got wisdom, there's wisdom in its structure and its, its way of, I mean, there actually is, but we sometimes want to cook the recipe book instead of letting the recipe lead us into that deep relationship with God and each other. I mean, it's, its origins are out of monastic community of prayer and ways of praying and community. It, Dr. Harvest is right. It really does. But we got to use it. We got to stop cooking the recipe book and think mm-hmm. that's all we need to do with it. Um, we got to make the recipe, follow its recipes inside these churches and outside. I am, I'm, I'm to my dying day, I will be an evangelist. Um, whether it is successful or not, I don't care. It, but the truth is, take that book out into the world. And, and maybe this pandemic is forcing us to do, I mean, in a funny, when one of my anxieties is that when the pandemic is or, if you will, um, when, when, when it's sort of over, if we'll slowly remove, go back to our churches and stay enclosed and leave the congregations that we have met out here online, leave them out there, leave them, have them left behind. My point is let no soul be left behind. Um, and if those congregations remain there in the air, 
That's all right. Meet them there. Whatever it is, go where the sheep are, mm-hmm. um, and and work to build community there and 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 around common prayer. And it we have been given an evangelical moment in the pain of this nightmare of a pandemic and social crisis. I think that one of the things that happens is how lovely it is to be with you again, Bishop Curry. You were my bishop for many years. Oh, and what a joy. <laughs> and it's just and Christianity creates that, namely yes. that even across time and space, we remain connected because we share the common history of the worship of Jesus Christ. Yes, and um, Apollo right now is we're burying Raleigh, who was our um, who was our senior warden for many years at Church of yep. Holy Family, and that I can mm-hmm. share that with Bishop Curry is yep. the kind of thing that Christianity makes possible in a world of yes. anonymity. Amen. Well, I couldn't think of any note better to end on than that. So I just want to thank you, Dr. Harwas. Thank you, Bishop Curry. This has been so delightful talking to both of you. Um, and thank you all both for your service to the church. You both, have, you both give so much to all of us through your different modes of leadership. So thank you for that as well. It's great to be with you. Great to be with you. Thank you. It's all great right. to be with you all. I'm just down the street from you, probably. But are you are you in North Carolina? Oh yeah, I'm in Raleigh. Oh yeah, I kept my house here. Oh yeah, I knew you did, but I didn't know if you were stuck in New York or not. Oh, that's no, great. no, I haven't been in New York since February. <laughs> I married a North Carolina girl, and she never let me out of the state. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. And just a reminder to all of our listeners now living in a tense and strange national moment that these episodes are recorded weeks in advance. So for your cutting-edge news coverage of what's going on in the church and world, you can visit our website, livingchurch.org. Tune into the podcast for conversations on some of these topics and many others. And tune in Thursday, January 28th, when we welcome Dr. Luke Bretherton and Dr. John Orens to talk about democracy, socialism, and Christianity. Is there such a thing as Christian socialism? What does democracy have to do with Christian life today? Check it out, Thursday, January 28th. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.